Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. Today, we're joined by Dr. Evan Applebaum. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thanks for being on. Uh, Do we call you uh, Evan or Dr. Applebaum? What would you prefer? Please, Evan. That's my name. Evan. Evan. Um, So Evan is a cardiologist working out of Men's Health Boston. Now, Evan, you're part owner in the practice? Uh, Soon to be, hopefully, if not complete owner, um, but definitely uh, a, a significant figure in the practice, I would say. Excellent. So, you know, my background um, briefly is I'm a cardiologist. Uh, I trained and then practiced at uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts for almost 20 years. And there uh, I trained in general cardiology, imaging, um, diagnostics, preventive cardiology. I did a lot of teaching with medical students and uh, trainees and a lot of research and writing and that kind of stuff. So I was in the thick of it from an academic perspective for a while. Uh, I took care of a lot of patients simultaneously. And several years ago, uh, I started getting the itch to take a lot of what I've learned and some of what I think is innovative and move that out into the private practice world to create a, a very unique style practice, both from a philosophical perspective as well as Uh, traditional medical types of care. We're we're called Men's Health Boston. And I don't just treat men, but the background of that is it was predominantly a urology sexual medicine practice originally. And the vision of the owner there, Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler, was men's health, much like women's health, could be much bigger than that. And it's not just focusing on urologic needs, but also cardiovascular. There's a close intimacy between the two. Uh, through things like erectile dysfunction, hormone therapy. So uh, we met a number of years ago, hit it off, and he thought as well as I did that it would be a good marriage. And we've expanded the services to include cardiovascular um, you know, disease management, a lot of prevention, which is something that I've become very focused in and very interested in, uh, apropos of our discussion today. And um, doing a lot of different things. I would say I have a very holistic approach, meaning I come at it from a a variety of different perspectives and understand the value of the group approach to kind of identifying your goals in life and how you want to live your life and how you want to feel. And that helps guide me and our group and whatever other health practitioners, providers that are in the network to help best focus you and, you know, get you the results that you're looking for, hopefully. And that, you know, encompasses mental health, it encompasses diet, it encompasses exercise, it encompasses understanding your risk of various diseases like cardiovascular disease, and then coming up with a real cogent plan about how to approach it. Not today, we like to prevent problems. So we're looking at a time horizon over time, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, What can we start? What kind of habits can we build? 
that will lead us to a healthy, happy life. And uh, that's my current practice, uh, which really has been amazing uh, and life-changing for me and hopefully life-changing for many of my patients. And despite the name, once again, I see both men and women. And uh, that's been uh, really great uh, to bring to the practice, which wasn't originally like that. So kind of a tie into our topic today, I think, which I'll let you introduce. There's a lot of prevention on my mind, and that relates to healthy habits and eating, cholesterol, understanding what cholesterol might mean for you, and the various nuances. And when you see your doctor or your healthcare provider, what do you do with this information? Yeah, so all good stuff. I mean, I, yeah. lo I love to hear from physicians when they're really kind of, you know, almost hyper-focused on the, the practical kind of prevention aspect and the holistic approach and incorporating the, the diet, the nutrition piece, right? Because obviously that's, yeah. where, that's where Nicole and I sit on the nutrition piece and trying to help people in that. And then, you know, linking up with great doctors such as yourself in terms of, hey, like, let's go and get some testing done, make sure you're healthy and make sure that you stay healthy. And, uh, you know, cholesterol is a big topic. It's a ever evolving. We're still learning things in terms of the research on that. So I want to take a little bit of time, focus on what exactly cholesterol is, how it works. Uh, and then later on, we'll touch up on, you know, specific testing that you do from preventative. I know that there's some stuff that you do that's not just cholesterol based. Um, so just explain to us a little bit about cholesterol and what it is, what's the function of cholesterol in the body and, you know, levels of cholesterol and what we'd be measuring and looking for. So look, cholesterol is a very interesting molecule. It is omnipotent. It's everywhere in your body. And why I say that is it really is part of every cell. It makes up the wall, the membrane of your cell. So it plays a critical role and is extremely important in cellular function, healthy cellular function. As well, I think more commonly, cholesterol has been known to be a, a molecule that's involved in hormones in your body. What the structure of your hormones is based on involves cholesterol as a backbone. So building healthy hormones in your body. And as well, I think the biggest, most uh, typical exposure understanding of cholesterol is kind of this waxy, fatty substance that travels around in your bloodstream and can do both helpful and harmful things to your body and also may be a source of energy for your body. So understanding that cholesterol is not just one term, but many different types of molecules. For example, there's total cholesterol, there's good cholesterol, there's bad cholesterol, there are triglycerides. Understanding what the different roles of those molecules are and kind of putting it together, I think, uh, is helpful in really trying to demystify some of what, what we know and what we are, we're learning right now. So we've had some, uh, I guess I would call them somewhat recent advances in the uh, you know cholesterol and testing, right? So we used to just say, we used to just look at, you correct me if I'm wrong. We used to look at uh, total cholesterol, and then we kind of broke it down into HDL, LDL, uh, VLDL particles, uh, and we just looked at kind of good and bad. And the current approach that I guess you're taking and some other doctors are taking as well is looking at particle size within that cholesterol spectrum. Absolutely. And, and that's uh, a nuance, uh, a sub-character, so to speak, of the bigger cholesterol picture. 
-hmm. But if we take a step back first, let's say like, why would someone have their cholesterol tested, right? What's that all about? Yeah. And that speaks to someone coming to me or coming to any healthcare provider and saying, hey, I want to know if I'm healthy. I want to know what my risk is. Or do I have problems that exist right now that I don't know about? Remember, you always hear this concept of heart disease, vascular disease being a silent killer. Well, sometimes it can be. It's developing mm -hmm. and we don't feel it. So, Doc, how can I understand that? And how can we do something about it if it's a problem? So that's where it begins, I think. And when you see somebody, part of the panel or part of the spectrum of various ways to understand their risk, it always starts with taking a good history. And I'll tell you, talking to people is so undervalued nowadays. And that goes probably in every profession. Just sitting down, looking at someone eye to eye. I know it's harder in these COVID times to do that over, over the internet, but talking to people directly and really eliciting kind of their history, understanding how they feel, what their background is. And that leads to things like, what's the family history? What's your genetic background? That's important. What have you done in your life as far as jobs, environment, exposures, things like that? And what's your lifestyle? Do you exercise? Do you not exercise? What's your weight? How do you eat? You know, there's so many various, there's so many variables, I should say, in understanding the overall risk equation, but it still starts with the basic of talking to people and understanding their history. And then you move into things like measuring physiologic attributes. And what I mean by that is like a blood pressure. That's a physiologic attribute. Is it normal? Is it high? Is it low? What's their pulse? Is it normal? Is it high? Is it low? And you can examine them looking for signs or stigmata, we call them, in an examination that could give you a clue into maybe their cholesterol is high. Maybe they have high blood pressure they haven't realized and it's caused problems in their body. And there are a variety of things that you can glean from a good physical examination to add to that history. And then the next layer comes and that's where the testing comes in. And so often- let me, let, me, let me ask you this. Um, so, you know, you mentioned, you know, the conversation that you have with people. I guess before we dive into that, what are some of the influences that we can have just before even testing? Like, what are some of the things that will influence your, you know, fluctuating cholesterol levels from a lifestyle standpoint? Well, I think it always comes back to the basics, Darone. It's, it's like, are you active? You know, where are you in terms of your, your body weight? You know, are you overweight? And have you done things to your body, some helpful, some harmful, like exercise, <laughs> but also smoking? Smoking is still a huge issue with cardiovascular risk and doing harm to your body, not just in the cardiovascular space, but we know in the, in the cancer space and a variety of other problems as well. So understanding kind of your habits and your exposures. You know, there are things that people can be exposed to in their life that they didn't realize might increase their risk, like radiation. Maybe when you were younger, you were treated for lymphoma and had to have radiation to your chest. Well, that actually can accelerate the onset of cardiovascular disease. Clearly, what we eat is a huge part of, you know, what our body composition is. And ultimately, the risk of developing a variety of different diseases is influenced by our diet in a huge way. And we've come to understand that more and more probably in the last 10, 15, 20 years, you know, are you eating processed food, which is one thing that I think we all may, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouths, but I think in, in previous conversations agree that 
these are not natural substances that are being put into your body. And when your body sees those, it says, hey, I don't recognize this. And when you don't recognize it, you try to fight it. And what that means is your immune system gets revved up and there's something that's called inflammation that gets mm. increased in your body. And inflammation will cause havoc in every organ system from your brain to your heart to your kidneys, to your lungs, to your liver, to your muscles. There are problems there. So in, in anything that can bring on inflammation, which is in our very, a Western diet that's full of all of these kind of preservatives, is a big problem. And I think obesity, as we call it, or being overweight, carrying a lot of visceral fat or fat in general, uh, is, a, is a big component of it. So caloric control, real foods rather than processed foods. These are things that we try to hammer home. And then we can talk about the fat content in your body as it relates to cholesterol. You know, so there are a variety of things, I think, and I don't mean to digress, which I may have done at this point, but we'll get back on point. Back to you. No, you're, you're, this is great. I have a question. I want to go back a little bit in terms of um, good versus bad cholesterol like what the definition of good cholesterol is and bad cholesterol, what are the functions of those in our body, um, triglycerides as well. So can you talk a little bit about, because we get clients that come into the gym all the time um, and they'll come in with their blood work and one of their goals in terms of uh, an exercise program or a nutrition program is to change their cholesterol ratio from in the terms of good and bad. So what is that? How, do this, how does that function in our body? Why is one good versus bad, et cetera? Great, great question. It seems like a basic question, right? But there's also a lot of confusion around it. Mm -hmm. So backing up. So we talked about what cholesterol is. When we measure cholesterol, we send off what we call a lipid panel. Lipids are just fats. And that's really what cholesterol is, right? So when the, the cholesterol or lipid panel comes back, you get a variety of numbers. The first number is the total cholesterol. And that's a composite of all the various lipid fractions that we'll talk about in a second. But even that number is hugely predictive of your risk of developing a variety of diseases, meaning if it's very high. Which is they, what is considered high. So nowadays I would say a total cholesterol that exceeds 200 or 250 in mm -hmm. that neighborhood is considered high. Okay. Very high would be, you know, cholesterol total above, say, 300 or so. But your risk is increased. It's not, it's not a binary risk, meaning mm -hmm. it's not like if you hit that threshold, you're at risk. If you're below that threshold, you're not at risk, right? right. It's kind of this linear correlation. And what I mean is that for every point you go up, your risk may go up. For every point you go down, your risk may go down. So it's kind of a continuous variable rather than a binary variable. So somewhat arbitrary, 200 or 250, the point, once again, is the higher you go, the higher your risk is, and the lower you go, the lower your risk is. So when we talk about the total cholesterol, we have to understand that it's broken up into subfractions. And the three that you need to know about really are the good cholesterol, which is called HDL or high density lipoproteins. High-density lipoproteins are responsible for re removing cholesterol from all the tissues of our body and help getting it out of the system and, and put back towards the liver where it can be processed and whether we Screeded use- somehow. Yeah, yeah, or used to, to 
build healthy tissues that it needs to be done, but it's moving it, mobilizes it away from the tissues and away from harm. Yep. So typically we like higher HDL or good cholesterol. Now, so a so high, high, Okay. The higher the higher density just indicates, you know, from my understanding, is that uh, it's it's essentially lipoprotein, so it's fat and protein, and higher density has more protein. Correct. High density, it's packed, right? It's a very dense particle, right? So the particles may not be they're relatively small particles, but they're densely packed particles, and they're really really good at being able to shuttle substances like cholesterol around. And they're stable particles. And okay? what's, what is the high number or the number you're looking to be at? So, you know, once again, men and women will vary. And we're talking mm -hmm. about adults, not kids, right? So typically an average man will have uh, an HDL around 35 or 40. So anything above that is gravy for the guys, right? And anything below that is something that we need to work on, right? And because this is like the, the holy grail. Nobody's really come up with a great way to increase HDL other than the good old-fashioned hard work of exercise. Some would say red wine can have an influence on it. We don't um, want to tell our ladies that, though. <laughs> how, about, how, about, um, you know, how about, how about omega-3 and HDL cholesterol? Where, where are you at with that? So omega-3s can help boost HDL, but they're predominantly going to help lower LDL more than raise yes, HDL. Yes, that's what, I, that's what yep. I've always learned too. So we'll, we'll get to LDL in a sec. Um, you know, so uh, but niacin, let me just jump in. hold on. I was just going to say about raising niacin, you know, we know that in our B vitamins, niacin um, can increase uh, HDL. The challenge with taking niacin is you get really, really intense flushing, and that's not a great feeling. Uh, for a lot of people, you know, real beet red, like your face is burning. And that's been a challenge. The other thing is that the increase in HDL that is done with things like niacin and even some other medications that have been looked at in the pharmaceutical industry never quite translated into re reducing risk. So the natural way is the best way, keeping your weight in check, getting regular exercise, and maybe adding a little bit of red wine uh, to your diet. That might be a way to raise HDL. So um, the, the next subfraction is the bad cholesterol, right? So bad cholesterol is called LDL, low density lipoprotein. Okay. These lower density par particles actually are responsible for bringing cholesterol into tissues. And the one thing that it can do in a harmful way when it comes to cardiovascular risk, for example, is bring the cholesterol into the arterial wall and contribute to plaque formation. So the higher the LDL or bad cholesterol level, the more your risk is. Okay, the lower, which is what we're trying to do naturally through all the healthy habits that we reinforce, including a good diet that we'll talk about, exercise, low stress, um, a variety of things, and obviously, from the real traditional medical side, we use a lot of medications. Statins are the most common medication that we'll use. But LDL is probably the most potent subfraction of cholesterol in terms of prediction of risk of heart disease and stroke. So, and we do know that modifying it, lowering it, if it's elevated, can significantly reduce your risk of either a repeat heart attack and stroke or your first heart attack and stroke. 
So when we're talking about LDL levels that are optimal, right? It begins to start getting a little bit gray because the way that the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, the American Medical Association, uh, a variety of other um, uh, uh, societies, we focus on understanding your risk. If you have a low risk, we shoot for goals that are a little bit more relaxed, so to speak, or a little higher. If you've got high risk, say, for example, you've had a stroke or a heart attack, have had bypass surgery or a coronary artery stent, then we shoot for much lower levels, okay? But generally speaking, I like telling people that the cutoff that you should start really thinking about whether you need to be treated or you need to modify a, a, a behavior or a lifestyle significantly is really an LDL around 130 to 100, say 100 to 130, that range. Um, when your risk is moderate, we like to shoot it below 100. When your risk is high, we like to shoot it below 70. And some people believe that there's no basement, there's no bottom, the lower the better. Uh, you'll see some cardiovascular patients who are treated with high-dose statins and a few other medications who have very little LDL cholesterol. And the hope there is to stave off future problems. So question for you on, in regards to that. Um, yeah. One of the things that you guys do in your practice is uh, you deal with hormones. So you do hormone testing. Is there an effect when you're taking a statin on your hormones because cholesterol is, is kind of one of those things that's somewhat responsible for testosterone production? It's a great question. So the, you know, serum cholesterol reduction will not influence because cholesterol, LDL, all that stuff is so prevalent in your body. The stores of it are so large and the mechanisms by which that you're making or producing hormones versus producing lipid particles that are going to be involved in plaque buildup, for example, are different that the, the answer is that it doesn't influence your hormone levels to any significant degree. You know, there may be an article or two out there that may hint at one way or another, but by and large statins will, won't lower your testosterone level. So the third subfraction in that equation to make up total cholesterol are the triglycerides. And people are like, what, what are triglycerides? Well, triglycerides are energy. That's the, the fat form of energy. We use that in our body uh, as energy. It's storable. So when we don't utilize calories, a lot of it can be shifted into stored triglycerides or fat. And when you try to calculate total cholesterol, you have to understand that a component of it is from triglycerides. So the equation for total cholesterol, for those of you out there who want to know equations, is HDL plus LDL plus triglycerides divided by five. So it's a fifth of the total triglycerides. So when you look at your total cholesterol, sometimes it doesn't make sense when your triglycerides are very high, why your total cholesterol is not that high, because it's a fifth of that that goes into the equation. And triglycerides are yet another marker that could indicate risk of cardiovascular disease. High triglycerides can also cause things like inflammation of the pancreas, inflammation of the liver, we know that high triglycerides are part of a, um, a constellation of, of things that make up something called metabolic syndrome, which goes along with obesity, high triglycerides, um, elevated inflammation, and higher cardiovascular risk. So trying to avoid metabolic syndrome is good. So generally speaking, much like LDL, the lower your triglycerides are, the better. 
Triglycerides are the one component of the total cholesterol that's most influenced by diet. And you'll notice that if you do a lipid panel, fasting versus not fasting. If it's not fasting, your triglycerides, that fraction will be significantly elevated. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have a problem with triglycerides, but if you want to get a good clean bead on your triglycerides, you should do a fasting cholesterol panel. And you'll get a more accurate Correct. of where you're at. It's really the fasting triglyceride level that's most predictive. And now cholesterol, so, does that have to be fasted or that doesn't matter? I think the purists would say that a, a lipid panel should be done fasting. But in my experience, which is supported by the literature, the LDL and the HDL number won't change dramatically with a non-fasting sample. So it becomes more practical. You come to my office, I have your undivided attention for that five minutes that I see you. I'm going to capture the cholesterol at that moment rather than saying, well, Daron, why don't you come back in a week, you know, in the morning without eating anything. And then all of a sudden you never show up and we don't get the numbers and we can't make any decisions on that. So it's practical. Yes, fasting is better, but I would take a non-fasting HDL or LDL uh, versus no uh, cholesterol panel done at all because you decided not to come back. But triglycerides for sure will be influenced by fasting state. Generally speaking, we like our triglycerides to be below 200. Um, for all of you out there, when you take a look at numbers that clients might bring you to, you know, to a, a visit, you'll see the total cholesterol number. 200 is a good number to measure. Uh, remember, trying to keep it below that. We talked about LDL, you know, we like it to be less than 130, even 100. HDL, we like it to be above, say, 40 for a man, 45 for a woman. Triglycerides, we like below 200. But if you happen to see patients who have triglycerides that are 500, 600, 700, 1,000, that could be a real medical problem. So that's the time when you say to your client or patient, hey, your triglycerides are really elevated. I think you should talk to your doctor about that. You may need to be treated. So just kind of be on the lookout for that. That's important. Well, I think at that point, I mean, they would have already gone to you or their physician. Hopefully, yeah. That, yeah Possibly, <laughs> but, but you know better than I do. Some people nowadays, you can get your labs checked uh, through That's true. Amazon. You can order a kit yeah. and get it checked. And all of a sudden you have these data and you haven't spoken to a doctor or a healthcare provider per se, and, and you're the one that they show up and show you these results. And just a, just a little pearl out there, just be on the lookout for stuff like that. And if there's ever any question, obviously reaching out to somebody or having them reach out to somebody is always the right thing to do. Cool. So, so we, now talked we, we, talked, we talked about the basic subgroups of the lipid panel. And you had... Uh, mentioned something earlier that I'm interested in is what we call uh, particle testing. And it's, it's most relevant right now for LDL cholesterol. So, you know, part of the challenge is that just looking at one biomarker like cholesterol or just looking at LDL does not encapsulate somebody's complete risk. And you're naive out there if you think that it does. And I apologize to all the healthcare providers out there who think it's the only thing you need to check. It just ain't true. You just have to look at a variety of things. You have to play odds. And if there are 10 variables in an equation, and if all of them put you at risk, you'll feel better about saying you have higher risk. Whereas if only one out of the 10 variables are abnormal, eh, I'm not sure the odds are much different than, than having you know, no variables. So 
you're just playing kind of uh, odds and statistics. And what I mean is that there are some individuals who, who, I've, who I see regularly or have come to see me, and many of you out there will know that, where they have low cholesterol and they've had a heart attack and stroke. How is that? I thought you needed high cholesterol to have a heart attack and stroke. Well, obviously, there's a lot of other unanswered questions. And the same thing can go in the opposite direction. You've got extremely high cholesterol, but you've never had a heart attack and stroke and you're 85 years old and you've had it for 30 or 40 years. How does that happen? Well, not all cholesterol is created equally, right? Like a lot of variables. And the devil's in the details, so to speak. I like to say that in that when you look at LDL, for example, one way to begin to try to explain some of these phenomena that don't make sense is when you look at LDL, not all LDL is created equal. There are smaller LDL particles and there are larger LDL particles through the whole number of LDL, the whole total amount of LDL that's in your body. You know, every particle may be slightly different in size. And what we found is that the smaller LDL particles are the ones that can dig into those blood vessels and are more uh, likely to contribute to plaque formation. So even if you have normal or low LDL le levels and your LDL is a very, very small size LDL, you may be at more risk than you realize. And the opposite is true, right? Which is you may have a lot of LDL, but they may be large plump LDL particles that are inert and bounce off the walls of the artery, don't contribute to plaque form formation or injury to vessels or inflammation. And despite having a high LDL, you may, be ha may have crystal clean arteries, right? You know, in my practice, why I like looking at particles like that is it begins to kind of unravel some of the unknown. And I always add it to other types of testing. And I think like, like we've talked about, things like inflammatory markers, high sensitivity CRP or C-reactive protein. I'm an imaging cardiologist, so I like looking at blood vessels. And we've talked about this as well. I kind of use the adage, all roads lead to Rome. Rome being the blood vessel when it comes to cardiovascular disease. And if you can actually look at the blood vessel, you can see the state of the blood vessel, the health. Is it a pliable blood vessel? At the age of 50, are you building up more plaque than you should be? And if you are, your risk is clearly higher. So whatever your cholesterol numbers are, you're in a state of building plaque and we need to be more aggressive about risk reduction in whatever you know, whatever we recommend. And once again, it's always going to be a combination of lifestyle modification, diet modification, and potentially medications that we use. So particle testing or subparticle testing can be helpful in understanding even further what your risk might be um, and trying to explain why someone uh, with a high level or a low level might be at risk or might not be at risk. Hopefully that makes some sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, there, that, there and are a couple. There are a couple of laboratories that do this. Cleveland Heart used to do it. Um, Quest Labs has something called a Cardio IQ panel, and it lists all of these subparticles, the amounts, and it gives you actually for LDL particles the size of the particle is measured in something called angstroms. That's the size of the particle. So if the number of angstroms is lower, that's a smaller particle that might, might be more plaque prone. If the angstroms is higher than the average, that might be a larger particle and less plaque prone. 
Now, I, I just want to backtrack for a second. So uh, you mentioned inflammation a bunch, right? And obviously, in, inflammation seems to be uh, a key player in, in terms of a risk factor, C-reactive protein, measuring that, other inflammatory markers that you might potentially be looking at. How does the inflammation affect plaque buildup? Great question. And I think people don't realize that when you look microscopically at an artery, right, when you look at the area where plaque is building up, it's a, it's a really interesting environment. There are these cells, smooth cells, or fo- and turn into foam cells that start to chew up things like cholesterol and become foamy. But in that area is inflammation, and that means there's injury. So as part of the plaque building process is actually damage or inflammation, much like you cut yourself or you bruise yourself, an inflammatory, what causes pain? Inflammatory mediators. What causes redness? Inflammatory mediators, right? Uh, we used to call it rubor, dolor, color, which is you know, pain, redness, and heat are all cardinal signs of inflammation. This happens in the artery wall too. And there are a variety of things that can cause inflammation. Cholesterol itself can actually cause inflammation. But injury to the arteries, whether it's an infection, whether it's um, other uh, substances that we talked about in your diet, for example, uh, foreign substances uh, such as uh, uh, things that we put in food uh, that are preservatives, you know, the immune system doesn't recognize these things. And when they're around and they start to bump into the walls of the artery, they can develop inflammation from that. But once again, when you look at this microscopic environment, it's a combination of cholesterol and inflammation. And those two things together are bad news. They create chronic inflammation, which then makes that area prone to plaque buildup and progressive blockage in an artery, for example, or makes that area of plaque buildup more vulnerable to cracking open and having a blood clot form right then and there. That's the basis of a heart attack or a stroke. You have a plaque in an artery that may not be blocking the flow, but because of the intense inflammation in the area, it's weak and cracks open and exposes those kind of cellular elements to the blood. The blood sees it as a wound, tries to heal it with a clot, and lo and behold, you have a clot that knocks off an artery. So inflammation is critical. And C-reactive protein is one inflammatory marker. There's something called ESR or erythrocyte sedimentation rate, which is a nonspecific inflammation marker. There are a whole host of things. But you have to remember that inflammation comes from your environment. It comes from your diet. It comes from diseases like diabetes, for example, and high blood pressure, exposures like tobacco smoke. I mean, there's so many sources of inflammation and injury to our bodies that sometimes it's, it's unbelievable that our bodies continue to maintain themselves. We've got these real robust mechanisms to stay healthy, but we have to support those. And that gets back to kind of our mission in using a variety of ways to do that. And whether that's healthy living through diet and exercise, uh, medications, there are a variety of ways to kind of reinforce that, that process. Well, let me ask you this from a uh, dietary perspective, uh, and I've recently, I kind of dove back into this research. You know, I don't, I'm not sure if this is research that you've dived into 
the uh, refined seed oil and the composition of omega-6 fatty acids, there seems to be kind of a mixture of information out there. There are some people that would imply, hey, uh, a high rate of omega-6 fatty acids in some of these refined seed oils that we're using in processed foods may be contributing to increases in inflammation. Uh, and then there's some research like I, I just saw in the American Heart Association uh, the other day that would suggest that these types of fat have actually a cardioprotective uh, mechanism behind them. So we're, we're, what do you think in terms of that? Well, first and foremost, there's, there's a lot of information out there. We need omega-6. Omega-6 is essential, right? There are fatty acids that are essential that we don't make per se. So we need to get them from other sources, right? It's always about the balance. You know, when you read most of the literature, it can be a bit confusing. The challenge with the Western diet traditionally, fast food, for example, is it's so high in processed oils uh, and omega-6 that that balance between omega-6 and omega-3 is really off. I mean, really, ideally, we should be shooting in our diet for like a four to one, five to one, six to one ratio. When you look at a traditional Western diet, that omega-6 to omega-3 can be as high as 20 to 30 to 1. And that's when the balance is a problem. Why is that balance a problem? Because you have to remember that omega-6 is partly involved in, for example, helping us build mechanisms that can help us clot. Omega-3 is doing the opposite. So you need, in order to find a good balance between the two, because you want some clotting. If you cut yourself and have a wound, you want to be able to clot that off. You don't want to bleed to death, right? So you need that area of type of, of, of omega-6 in the body to help support that. But at the same time, if you overdo it, you're going to clot too easily. And we don't want that to happen because that can lead to obvious problems, right? So omega-3 and omega-6 are constantly kind of vying or battling for a good ratio to keep those systems healthy. The same goes for inflammation. If you've got too much omega-6 exposure, you may have ramped up inflammation, whereas omega-3 can help tamp down inflammation. So what omega-3s, these are healthy fats that we talk about all the time. And the best place to get omega-3s from, omega-3s will help reduce cholesterol, reduce LDL, reduce inflammation. These are the great, great oils that we get from our diet. The natural sources are always the best. We can talk about supplements, but the problem with moving from natural states of food to supplements is you underappreciate many of the other molecules that may coexist in those healthy foods that aren't represented in the purified version of a supplement. That makes sense? You know, omega-3s in fish, uh, particularly oily fishes like salmon and tuna, right? Awesome. But there's so many other healthy substances in salmon and tuna that don't get enough credence. Uh, it's not just the omega-3s. So when you eat a healthy food and you, the real goal is to have an oily fish twice a week. That's the great, that's the, that's the recommendation. That'll give you a good solid dose of omega-3, healthy fat, healthy protein, and a lot of these other healthy substances. And what do omega-3s do? Well, there are two omega-3s that we need to know about, right? There's DHA and EPA. Dicosahexapentanoic acid is DHA, Right. And EPA is eicosapentaenoic acid. And these are the healthy omega-3s that are responsible in part for helping reduce inflammation and reduce cholesterol. You can get them from plant-based, right? But 
it's usually through conversion of something in the omega-6. So um, like uh, ALA, for example. So in flaxseed oil, hemp seed oil, uh, there are a couple of uh, grains that we can get a lot of uh, plant-based walnuts, for example, almonds. Uh, there are a few sources of plant-based for those who don't eat fish um, and who stick to a plant-based diet that's really a good way to try to enrich for omega-3s is to get some of those that can be converted to omega-3 from the omega-6 that's in there. So one of the things I always recommended for my uh, vegan clients is uh, because ALA kind of has a, a tough time converting uh, and what we, what we find is that women actually have an easier time for whatever reason converting that into the active form uh, is sea algae because that actually will contain your uh, EPA and DHA. Yeah. So that, yeah. That, that's great. advice. I mean, once again, the whole point is to kind of keep a good balance. And if you've got a restrictive diet for whatever reason, you have to think about alternative sources to kind of get this healthy balance in your diet. And I think that's what you're alluding to when you have a lot of clients that need to kind of be creative in the way they approach it. You have to give them some other options or sources. But once again, it's, it's not that omega-6 is bad it's not that polyunsaturated, monounsaturated is bad or good. It's just a source of something that we want to try to keep in balance so that our system could be kind of in perfect harmony. And that's hard to achieve. But the challenge with the Western diet is it's so heavily pushed towards processed food and it's so heavy in omega-6 that that balance gets interrupted and can be pro-inflammatory. And we know with inflammation, you know, it's, it's associated with diabetes. It's associated with cardiovascular disease. It's associated with cancer. Pretty much every organ system in the body is influenced in a negative way when that is, a, is the diet, the main source of your diet. And uh, I, I know that's not, you know, it, moderation is what we preach, right? So 100% exactly. getting everything in moderation. And I know that's something, something that isn't going to be it like, sounds so simple. <laughs> well, it's not going to be like, oh man, we're, I'm listening to this groundbreaking podcast that just gave me some crazy advice that I'm just going to do something and I'm going to be healthy. And unfortunately, it's the basics. That's, that's not the way, that's not the way things work. Yeah. Well, I think from a philosophical perspective, agree or disagree, we kind of, once again, we want to create healthy habits that you can sustain, right? Say it again. Say healthy it again. habits <laughs> that you can sustain. Anything kind of crash or rash yes. or extreme will never have success. I wouldn't say never, but for the average for person. For a short period of time. Yeah, anyway. you may see some results, but ultimately you drift back to what you were, if not worse off, yes. because you just can't sustain it. And any diet that we've ever heard of, it's that same thing. You want to create small changes, right, over time that add up and change your lifestyle, right? We're not, we're not building Rome in a day. We're building it in years and years of hard work and kind of slow, steady changes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Can we say it again? <laughs> <laughs> we just said it twice. What do you mean? I know. I, I think we need to say it again. No, what I like about, you know, Daron and I, with all of our clients, we I mean, obviously, slow, steady lifestyle change is obviously why I'm getting so excited because it's literally what we talk about, you know, session to session. And I think when we talk about lifestyle, people want fast results or sometimes clients come in almost feeling guilt and shame that maybe they haven't been taking care of themselves and they get to this place where things maybe aren't optimal and they need to create this balance and change to get back to a healthier, you know, way. 
Um, and instead of putting in the hard work and just kind of buckling down, taking time um, and doing it the right way, they want to do it quickly so that they can get back to health fast, right? Well, here, here's the thing too, and I had this conversation with a client the other day uh, that I was talking about. It's not about oh, this radical shift in your lifestyle because you can't go to zero, from zero to 60 like, you know, snap my fingers and you're, and you're there. Uh, it's not about fitting your life around your habits that you're trying to create, your nutrition, your new exercise plan, all that stuff. It's more so about fitting your exercise plan and your habits and your nutrition into your current lifestyle. And right. once you think with that mind shift, then you're thinking about long-term success. Like how do I fit it into my life, not fit my life around my fitness and my health and my wellness? Right. Absolutely. I, I even go so far sometimes as, as to take patients who have a schedule, like many people, I can't say that I live by a schedule who actually write a schedule down, you know, actually box off time for these various things that you're doing, not just about your job, but about your healthy lifestyle, your diet. Give it some time on your schedule every day. It takes time and it takes energy and it takes focus to really be good at these things. And it helps people re, I guess, calibrate what's important in life, right? I think, you know, quite honestly, the, one of the silver linings in, in this whole, whole COVID ordeal is it's given us a lot of time to kind of look at life and analyze really what's important, what are our goals. It's given a lot of people time to think, time to refocus on themselves because, you know, unfortunately, whether it's unemployment or being remotely employed, you now have a little bit more time on your own that you didn't have before. People aren't traveling across the world for work. All of a sudden, they've got time to sit and think a little bit. And the miraculous thing is it's been, for a lot of people, I can't say for everybody, that, that time back has given them kind of a, a better, healthier outlook and approach to their lifestyles. And hopefully that'll carry over as we move forward. But I think it just speaks to, you know, the importance of slow and steady wins the race, right? We have to first educate, but then take these things on little by little. And you can't, you can't live by the, you know, fast and furious results of modern society and cell phones and internet access and Instagram. And I'm going off a little bit on tangent here, but I just mean you have to have some patience. It'll pay off. Absolutely. Yeah, true. And I think one of the biggest things that, cause you bring up the COVID thing, I think initially the COVID yep. thing was like, Oh, all my clients were like, Oh, I'm so stressed out. But then when you realize that you actually have time to just take a breath, Correct. Um, the stress reduction piece, I know yeah. for myself, especially like I'm like weightlifter off my, I'm not doing that day to day repetitive, like hustle and grind. So let me ask you this on that topic, since we're on stress, stress. <laughs> where, where does that fall into play in terms of uh, heart health, overall health? Are there inflammatory markers that play in that? Great question. I would say stress is one of the biggest problems in, um, in medicine, probably underappreciated. And I'll give you an example. Um, you know, patient A will come to me, not uncommonly in this scenario, like, you know, I, I've got blood pressure that's off the roof and I can't control it. I'm on five medications and it's still 200 over 100. And just looking at that person, looking at the stress level at which they came in, come into the office under, you realize right away that what's influencing high blood pressure, your stress hormones. If your stress hormones are high, it doesn't matter how many medications you throw at somebody, right? It's still going to be a challenge to control. 
And that speaks to every problem in medicine. You have to first engage them and first bringing them down and understanding that, you know, that stress hormones play a critical role in all of these problems. So if you can just focus on reducing stress and for someone like that, you know, breathing, meditating, and and I'm not saying you have to be a deep meditator, but getting yourself in a calm, quiet, peaceful place for 20, 30, 40 minutes a day will, you know, outweigh any effect that a medication that I could prescribe to you will have. And I think that speaks to a lot of things. When the stress level goes up, it becomes a real negative influence on your body in every way. Uh, you'll, you'll binge eat more, you'll, you'll, you'll stop exercising, or you'll begin to do things and think, it just drives you crazy. And I think by controlling that stress level, it actually will help heal and help deal with a lot of these problems without having to change much else. I think the challenge for us is how do we recommend what is stress reduction and, and how do you individualize that for, for people? You know, in my field, I think exercise is a great way to reduce stress. If you can get into a regular exercise routine, that's going to naturally de-stress you to some degree. It may not be the only thing you need to do, but I think that's a huge component. And I'm glad you brought that up because uh, simply by addressing that and not saying, well, you've got high blood pressure and we need to put you on 20 medications now. Like, let's look, talk about your stress level and let's manage that a little better. And lo and behold, one medication, beautiful blood pressure rather than four medications and out of, out of sight blood pressure. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, that's something that we just, uh, I just recently implemented for, uh, the eat right nutrition. Uh, we, we rolled out a new, um, questionnaire an intake questionnaire and one of the sections in it is what are your stressors and it's just rate one to ten so it's it's work it's family it's uh you know relationships with other people it's your you know your lack of exercise your lack of sleep so like rate one to ten and then that's where i think we can get a little bit more kind of individualized in terms of the hey what are your needs what are your daily stressors and what are the areas of opportunity for you to work on as an individual, because stress is, you know, stress and stress reduction, right? I, I've got those clients that are men that loves to work out and lift, lift weights. And they're like, what do you mean? You're telling me to meditate? Like, and I used to be one of those guys <laughs> until I did it. And I was like, oh man, I feel so wow. good. So, you know, and there's, there's different techniques in, in terms of that. You know, I, it's meditation to me, isn't just about the, you know, sitting in a quiet room with your legs crossed and, and closing your eyes and focusing on your breathing. It's just essentially being in the moment and not being distracted. Absolutely. I think it can be defined in so many different ways, but, you know, and to one of your questions was, well, are there ways that I can measure that or see that in, you know, in, in biomarkers, for example, well, believe it or not, the higher your stress levels are, the higher your risk of heart attack and stroke is. You look at cholesterol, under stressful situations, your cholesterol will go up, okay? So it's going to rise. Your C-reactive protein, your in inflammatory markers rise when you're more stressed out, right? Your blood pressure rises when you're more stressed out. And you can pretty much across the board measure all these negative things that go up with your stress hormone level. So really, we need to address stress, and that will really help us reduce your risk of problems and make you feel better and live healthier and live longer. And I, I really like the approach that you're taking with, well, where does your stress come from? 
So that really helps you individualize how you might lay out a good program for someone to focus in the areas of stress uh, and getting rid of those. And uh, there's one more thing for uh, testing wise, you, you mentioned in the last time we spoke was uh, the vascular testing that you do too, as an indication of like where you currently stand. Yeah. I think that for a lot of people interested in say prevention or, you know, it's good to get an understanding of what the state of the union is at the moment they kind of come in to see me. And it helps me kind of map out, okay, are there problems that exist now that we need to be more aggressive with? Or are there no problems right now? And we have a little bit more time to focus on a lot of these slow lifestyle changes that over time will prevent problems. And, you know, for me, I love physiologic and anatomic tests. That combination is very powerful. A physiologic test is like a functional test. My most common physiologic test is a stress test. We put you on a treadmill, we put you on an exercise bicycle, and we test your fitness. And at the same time, we have you hooked up to electrodes and we can see whether from an electrical perspective, there's any problem with blood flow to the heart. That's the basis of a stress test. It's graded exercise. And the more fit you are, right, the better your prognosis is, basically. If you've been a regular exerciser and you've paid attention to it, obviously there are a handful of metrics that you hear spoken about. Your resting heart rate, your heart rate recovery, all of which we can see during a stress test, but it's a physiologic test. It's an assessment at that time of what your exercise capacity is. And for you, for your age, is it average? Is it below average? Is it above average? Do we need to tweak it? Um, so it's a way to begin to under, understand your risk and your state of health. And then the anatomic side is, I add to that, looking at the arteries. So there are several different ways. One easy bedside way that I love using because I can do it right in the office is something called a carotid ultrasound. The carotid arteries are the arteries that come off your aorta that feed blood to your brain. So when you have stroke, that's the most common area that's being influenced. There's a problem in the carotid artery. So you can very easily see that on the neck and I can look to see the health of the artery. Is the artery nice and youthful looking, pliable? It's contracting uh, with pulsations very freely. Is it building plaque? You know, we use carotid ultrasound sometimes to, to assess blockage, but for me, it's more about risk. You, there's actually a measurement called intima medial thickness, and that actually looks at the thickness of the inner layers of the artery. Obviously, the thicker they get, the more indicative of plaque buildup or early signs of plaque buildup, the higher risk is. So some people use this thing called IMT. I'm I'm a more simple person than that. I just like to look to see if it looks thick and is there plaque buildup. And that's a super test to use. The other great thing is that there's a huge correlation uh, between carotid health and heart coronary health and health in other blood vessels of of the body, like the kidney arteries, the leg arteries, the brain arteries. So it's a great, easy bedside test. Other tests that I use sometimes, anatomically, we can look at the arteries of the heart in a similar way using CAT scanning. And there are two forms of CAT scans. One's called a calcium scan, which is a low radiation, no contrast added CAT scan that looks for calcium buildup. Why calcium? Well, calcium is a sign of injury to the artery and healing. When you have an inflammation and injury to the artery, 
what happens is, is that process heals ultimately, it can leave some calcification. And what calcium is are really battle scars. So if you've had a lot of inflammation and injury to your arteries, there's going to be more calcium. And we can say that at age 50, you shouldn't have any calcium or should have a little bit of calcium. And if you have a lot, your risk is higher. So we can do a calcium scan of the arteries of the heart to look for risk. And even more elegant or elaborate is we can give you some contrast and now in three dimensions can actually see the arteries in all their glory, not just for the calcium, but for the actually the soft plaque buildup. And the more of that we see, the higher your risk is. So there are a lot of neat anatomic non-invasive. These are not invasive angiograms of the heart, heart catheterizations. These are non-invasive um, that we can get a real clear sense of what your risk is. And I like putting that physiologic or functional information together with the anatomic information. Uh, since you bring up calcium, uh, and I brought this up in a previous episode that we're, we kind of have newer uh, research emerging. We used to always say like, hey, women should supplement with calcium. And now we're kind of reversing that because uh, we're, we're seeing that that might actually increase risk for cardiovascular disease. Uh, and I know obviously you, you should get adequate calcium from food versus supplementation. Yeah, I, I would say this is, you know, it's a controversial subject. And so you have to weigh the risk of uh, uh, fracture. So why, why do you enhance calcium in someone's diet, particularly postmenopausal women? They're at risk for osteoporosis or brittle bones. You can measure that uh, with something called a DEXA scan. It can give you a sense of how brittle or not brittle your bones are. And when you, you develop somewhat brittle bones, we call that osteopenia, really brittle bones, osteoporosis you're at risk for fractures, pathologic fractures, and that carries a lot of comorbidity. So there, you know, for the past 30 or 40 years, we've been really trying to hone in on understanding that and trying to reduce your risk of fractures. Calcium and vitamin D can do that, especially if you're deficient. Um, there are other medications that can do that. So that's the momentum towards, believe it or not, hormone replacement therapy using estrogen and testosterone can actually build bones. So sometimes people who are deficient in those, even women can be deficient in both. Um, you can use hormones to improve bone health. But as you bring up, there may be a counterbalancing force. That is, if we have calcium excess in our diet and we don't necessarily use all that calcium, maybe it can end up in blood vessels. To me, that's less of a risk. And the Evidence in that area is continuing to evolve, but I would tend to err on the side of if you have any evidence of osteopenia or porosis, you need to be on calcium and vitamin D. If your bones are healthy and your vitamin D level is normal, taking excess calcium is probably not advisable and may have deleterious effects, right? So that's what yeah. we're, I think that's so, probably so from, the take home message for right now. From a healthy yeah. standpoint, you don't necessarily need to supplement calcium unless you have some type of underlying, you know, osteoporosis, Issue. osteopenia. Yeah, bone problems or deficiency. Gotcha. And yeah. remember, weight-bearing exercises. Yes. That's an important way to keep your bones healthy. Resistance bones training. Need to feel some st stimulation, yep. Throughout the life cycle, right? I mean, if you get it when you're early and you're starting to, to exercise and do resistance training when you're young, that's while you're still building your bones, that's to me really the most important thing is exercising throughout the life stages. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just think evolutionarily, right? We weren't creatures that were designed to sit on couches and do nothing, right? We were creatures that were designed to live off the land, forage, be active, and have to do a lot of physical labor in order to survive. We haven't evolutionarily changed from those early beings at this point, believe it or not. So I still believe there's a use and there's a value that's inherent in our own makeup, our own genetic makeup that requires us to do weight bearing or resistance type of exercise. Great stuff. Stuff. Nicole, you got anything else? No, I'm no. I think we covered everything. I think we covered everything and such great information, Evan. Thank you so much. It's been Absolutely. Great. Look, I, I love doing this kind of thing. I'm always happy to come back and talk on something else. Um, you know, and I think just to kind of bring it back together, you know, cholesterol is important. Uh, it can be a marker of elevated cardiovascular risk. Talk about it with your doc, with your healthcare providers, uh, make it part of your plan and understanding when it comes to your diet and, and how you're going to approach that. There, there's good fat, there's bad fat, and it has to be individual, individualized. There's no one size fits all for any program of health, longevity, and prevention, right? Yes. It has to be individualized. We're all individuals. And all of our makeup, our background needs to be taken into, into consideration. And I think um, just talking about stuff like this, I think is interesting. And, and I think it brings to light um, the fact, and I think in a very positive way, we're, we're more and more attuned to living long quality lives. And I think that, um, I think that this contributes to stuff like this. So I appreciate the work that you're doing. I love collaborating with you guys in any way, always. This is a team effort, as I've said before, and uh, I wish you success. And, and hopefully um, we'll get some people to listen to this. And if they've got questions, there's a way for them to communicate with you. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, you know, for anybody who's in the uh, Boston area, uh, you know, Chestnut Hill, Men's Health Boston, Evan Applebaum. Absolutely. Doctor, great, great person to go to. Uh, excellent bedside manners. I yes. will say that. So, so, so easy to talk to. I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm always happy to talk to anyone, see anybody. So, excellent. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episode, Click subscribe, give us five stars, comment, and you'll hear us next week.